Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me on this legendary episode of the show about the show. I cannot tell you how excited I am regarding this episode. I have with me on the program tonight, or will be having with me on the program tonight, Tommy John, the former major leaguer who underwent the now infamous and famous Tommy John surgery. He's going to tell us about his decision to undergo that surgery. He's going to talk about everything that um, everything that went into that decision. And he is going to talk about his recovery from that. I also have his son, Dr. Tommy John Jr. on. He has actually written a book called Minimize Injury, Maximize Performance, a sports a sports parent survival guide in which he talks about the $15 billion a year youth sports industry. So we're going to have them on, and they will be with us momentarily. I just wanted to say happy Rusev Day to everybody, and I cannot tell you how exciting this episode is going to be. This is going to be a special uh, one-hour-long episode of the show about the show. We are going to talk to both Tommy John and Tommy John Jr. regarding um, the surgery, his dad's decision to go through with it. I'm going to give you guys some information about... um, about the feedback, or not the feedback, but I'm going to give you guys some information regarding um, some stats about Tommy's career, both pre- and post-surgery, and some of them are um, pretty surprising and interesting, if I do say so myself. So without any further ado, when they... um, when they call in here, we will bring them on. But I do um, want to say that I'm very, very excited. It is the night of WWE Extreme Rules. The pay-per-view just started here ooh, roughly two minutes ago or so. And I am going to be making my picks. I think that AJ Styles is going to win match, but I hope that Rusev actually does win because what a great Rusev day it would be for everybody. Oh, it would be machka everywhere, and that would just be fantastic. I think that Ronda Rousey is going to interfere in the women's match and cause Nia Jax to lose, therefore setting up Alexa Bliss versus... Ronda Rousey at SummerSlam. I think that... I don't know what the other matches are. Um, The New Day obviously had a match. I hope that they won. So, yeah, uh, it'll be interesting. I hope hope it's a good pay-per-view and that things go well because it's... uh, I'm... uh, Extreme Rules is supposed to be extreme, so... All right, so ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, I am happy, pleased, and grateful to bring on Tommy John and Dr. Tommy John 
Jr. for this very, very special episode of the show about the show. How you guys doing? We're doing fine. Thank you. Doing, doing very well. Thank you very much. Excellent. Let's uh, let's talk to uh, let's talk to Tommy John first about um, pitching in the major leagues. Obviously, you won you won two hundred and eighty-eight uh, career games. You didn't seem to get a whole lot of attention with the Hall of Fame. I don't want to get into a big Hall of Fame discussion because this is kind of this is kind of a different episode. But do you feel like do you feel like you kind of maybe got snubbed on the Hall of Fame? Well, I think some of my very good friends were New York sports writers, and way, way, way back when I first became eligible, they were call. Uh, you know we were talking about it and they said, well, you, you weren't dominating. And I said, dominating, define dominating. What do you mean? Well, you never had low hit games. You never had that's domination. And I said, well, I threw ground balls and I threw, or I tried to throw low pitch games. And I, I said, the name of the game is to win games, isn't it? That, that's what you strive for when you go out, whether you strike out 15. Yeah, if you're talking about a guy like Nolan Ryan striking out 15, he's dominating. But, you know, right. a lot of hitters did not fear hitting off of me because I never embarrassed them. So that they would come up, get good swings off my fastball, off my sinker, and go 0 for 4. Well, I, I won 188 games. And um, there, there was a thing on Facebook today I just saw. Uh, in the history of the game, there's been eight pitchers that have started over 700 games. The first seven are in the Hall of Fame. The eighth one is me. And uh, the guy was saying, you know, uh, is this going to hurt? He was, I, he was making a push for Mike Musina, but um, you know, I, I just, I don't know. Whatever domination is, uh, the way the game is played and managed now, it's all about how hard do, do you throw? You know, do you throw a hundred? If you throw a hundred, you may not get anybody out, but you can. And I just I find that you guys still with me? Hello? Yep. We're here. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I, you know, and I think, I think that's one of those things too, that we're going to kind of get into here a little bit later on in the episode. Cause I think that it seems like a lot of kids or a lot of pitchers are being taught from, you know, roughly little league age up to, you know, whatever time they stop playing baseball, that the best way to play baseball 
if you're a pitcher, is to throw the ball as hard as you can. And we'll we'll kind of, we'll kind of get into that. But I would like to talk about your career a little bit. Um, you did start. You debuted in 1963 with the Cleveland Indians. I believe that was the team that had Mudcat Grant and Jim Perry on it. If I'm not mistaken, is that correct? Uh, former Minnesota Twin Flyers. Yes, they were. Yeah, absolutely. And then you went on to – you played with them for 63 and 64, and then the White Sox for about, for a handful of years, 65 through 71. What do you remember about playing for the Indians and the White Sox? Well, the thing about the Indians, they, they gave me a chance to play Major League Baseball. Um, you know, the, the I was – talking about this the other day with friends and I said well when I was at Cleveland they had a really good pitching coach when I signed his name was Mel Harder and he was very smart and uh, you know when I got to the big leagues he was gone he retired and they had early win and early win was a hall of fame pitcher won 300 games and all that, but early he just, he was not a good coach. And or at least he couldn't, uh, couldn't coach me, but Cleveland gave me the opportunity to pitch. And my first two years there, I was like two and 11. A lot of guys would have been sent back to the minor leagues, but Cleveland uh, they sent me down for about six weeks in uh, July, all of August, and then I came back up when the season was over after Labor Day. And they brought up some little fat kid that uh, was in Cuba. His name was <laughs> And one, I think, in triple A ball, and I was 2 and 9 at the big, big league level that year. And so we just swapped places. But, um, you know, every place I went, as I look back over my career, it was for the best. Uh, trading me. Why would a trading team a young left-hander was um, I, I had a game against the White Sox that the um, – Uh, that's the um, pitching coach saw me pitch, and he said, uh, man, uh, told Al Lopez, he said, Al, if you got a chance to get this kid, you, we should really do it. He, he said he's, he threw some really good sinking fastballs, and if you throw a half a dozen, if you work on it, you can throw a hundred and that's uh, Ray Berry's uh, was the pitching coach. Sure. And he taught me the, the sinker, how to, how to make the ball sink. Hmm. And, and they, they did something right because in 19, in the 1968 season with the Chicago White Sox, you were in the all-star game. Can you talk about being in the All-Star game back then as opposed to what it is now? I mean, obviously back then. In 1968, did they still have two games per year? No, they just had the one game. They um, just had the one. Okay. We played our Can game. Can you talk about in, the, uh, Yeah. Uh, 
Well, we went in, and um, <laughs> I was so excited um, that I um, I left my baseball gear at um, Washington at the stadium. <laughs> and when I got to Houston, I'm looking, I went, oh, no, oh, no. So I had no idea who to call. And the next day I called uh, the Washington Senators and got a hold of somebody, and they said, no, we've got it all taken care of. It's going to be delivered uh, to your hotel or to the ballpark uh, today, which is uh, Monday. But, you know, we went down and had a chance to play, and, you know, it wasn't where back then you pitched one inning. The starter would go three innings. Right. And the next guy coming in would throw one, maybe two innings. And you go, uh, and we only had ten pitchers during during that game, and um, Dick Williams was the manager, and he got raked over the coals for doing what he did because he didn't leave anybody um, to pitch if the game was tied. I think the game was one to nothing, and he said, "Look." Mel, it was Mel Stottlemyre, you, Tommy, and Gary Bell will pitch the ninth inning. Mel, you'll you'll get the first out, Tommy the second out. Gary, you get the third out. If we tie it up, or they, they tie it up, um, you, um, you'll pitch the rest of the game. Okay, so Stottlemyre went out. Boom, got his out. I went out. I gave up a base hit. The next hitter gave up a ground ball. And it was a four-six-three double play. The inning was over, and Gary Bell still in the bullpen, looking for a chance to come in and pitch. <laughs> <laughs> and I, every time Cleveland Indian functions, I said, "Hey, you know, I'm really sorry about that." I said, I, I, "I wasn't doing it on purpose. It was just my my inability to get batters out." <laughs> Now you uh you ended up actually getting traded after the um nineteen seventy one season. You got traded to the Los Angeles Dodgers, obviously for um for Dick Allen, who a lot of people also should be in the feel should be in the Hall of Fame. Where you posted a pair of twenty win seasons and you were an all star twice. Um you played in the three World Series that the Yankees played against the Dodgers. But it was the 1974 season that really kind of changed everything. So in the middle of the 1974 season, you're having a great year. You're 13 and three. The Dodgers are going to win the pennant for the first time in eight years. And what happened? Well, I'm pitching a game. Um, I think it was the 17th of July, and I've got one more start, which would have been Sunday. And I'm pitching against uh, Montreal and uh, I forget the other, maybe the Mets. And, you know, those were not the hardest teams to go. So I had a chance to be 15-3 and at All-Star game and didn't get picked on the All-Star team. And um, uh, so anyway, uh, I'm pitching and I'm down one to nothing and – I got a runner on first base, and I, you know, throwing a sinker, 
and I threw it, and oh my God, I had this searing pain in my left elbow, you know, and I went, oh man, and I shook my arm, and I got back, and I threw one more pitch, same pain, and I just kind of walked off the mound, and I told Walt Alston, I said, I've hurt my arm, get somebody in there, and um, told our trainer, I said, uh, Bill, um, get Dr. Job. He said, I've already signaled for him. And uh, I went down in the clubhouse, changed out of my wet uniform and put dry clothes on and uh, went into the trainer's room. And um, um, it was, uh, you know, he examined me. We didn't have MRIs then, so uh, you could only do a manual uh, Sure. You know, where you, you manually open the open the the joint, and um, sure. next day he he wanted to see me, so I drove out and saw him, and um, he said, "I think you've torn a ligament in your elbow." And I went, "Oh, what what does that mean?" You know, tear what you know you out ten days or whatever, and he said, "Well, oh no," he said, "I've never really seen one in the elbow like this." Um, he said, if we're lucky, it'll heal. So I, we took some time off. I threw batting practice and I mean, I, I took, uh, three weeks off and then I started throwing lightly and, and tried to go back and throw batting practice. And as soon as I got on the, on the pitched, uh, mound, uh, it would start to hurt. And then our trainer, Bill Bueller taped my elbow up much like he would a sprained ankle to keep it from opening up and I could, I could throw pretty hard that way, but not, not good enough, consistent enough to win in the big legs. So then we got down to the point that I'm looking, you know, it's August, the middle of August, how much longer are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do? Is it going to be, and then it was the first of September and I pitching in tried to throw a batting practice in Atlanta and I couldn't do it. It just hurt. I got it. I went in, got on the phone, called Dr. Job. And he said, okay, come in to see me tomorrow. So we, after the game that day, we flew, we flew from Atlanta to San Francisco. And then I just got on a plane and flew down to LA and went in to see Dr. Job when we made the decision that um, something had to be done. And he said, I've never really done this before uh, in the elbow of a pitcher at the highest level that you can pitch. He said, you know, I've done ligament transplants in polio patients in the, uh, mm. in the ankles and stuff, but, uh, but never, never uh, on a major league pitcher's elbow. And so he sent me down to see a hand specialist and I saw the hand specialist and he, um, uh, examined me the same thing. And he was from Tennessee and he goes, boy, you sure done it. He said, you know, yeah. I said, well, what do you think? Well, Frank and I talked and uh, we're going to do a tendon transplant. And he said, if in a year or two that you can throw the ball from the mound to home plate, without any pain, it's a success. 
And I said, well, how about pitching? He says, I don't even worry about that. You, you aren't going to do that again. I went back to see Dr. Job that day, and uh, he said, you know, this is going to take uh, a while. And my thing was, if if you do your job, I will more than do my job. And right. he has always said that um, – surgeries, the surgeon does a, about 40% of the operation. The patient has to do 60 with rehab. And uh, I said, if you do your job, I will do more than my 60. And he said, okay. He said, that's a deal. And my words to him was, let's do it. And um, that's we figured out the date was going to be um, – uh, September 25th, 1974. And that was the day that, that everything changed for not just you, but for baseball and pitchers going forward. Um, Tommy had the ulnar collateral ligament, also known as the UCL, in his arm, replaced with a tendon from his right forearm. As he mentioned, it was done by Dr. Job on September 25th. And you spent the entire 1975 season in recovery. And it's interesting because when I was doing research for this, I came across I came across an interesting uh, piece of information. You actually had a teammate that was a uh, former major league that's a former major league pitcher now, but you had a teammate at the time that had a PhD in kinesiology who really taught you how to completely change the way you went about pitching. Can you talk about? That? Wrong, 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 wrong. That's oh. Wikipedia. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's false, yeah. false news. <laughs> oh, okay. False news. No, that um, uh, Mike Marshall, very, very, very intelligent. He never worked with me on anything. Okay. When I came back, when I came back throwing, our pitching coach with the Dodger. Uh, Team was a guy named Red Adams, and I said, "Red, when I'm throwing the ball exactly like I before the surgery, and I got that down in my notebook, I will." And so every time I threw, I wanted to make sure I was throwing the ball exactly like I did before I pitched. Mike didn't do anything. Okay. Okay. You. Uh... You were out in 1975. You came back in 1976. You were 10-10 and that year, which I guess at the time was considered pretty good. You went on to pitch until 1989. Um, what what were you thinking your first start back? Because, you know, a lot of times you hear when pitchers take, like, a line dive to the face or something like that, that it, it can kind of affect them mentally. Did you have any – did you have any um, – maybe nerves or issues when you threw that first pitch or when you really kind of reared back? Well, I pitched in a game in a competitive game one year, one day after surgery. Um, but it wasn't in the major leagues. It was in uh, the instructional league uh, in Arizona. I was pitching against a bunch of young California Angel players through 39 pitchers, and uh, I wanted to go on, 
and pitched another inning, and the Dodgers said, no, we, we had you down three innings, 60 pitches. I said, well, I've only thrown 39. Yeah, but you used up your innings. And I said, oh, okay, all right. So I I threw seven. I think I started seven games in that uh, fall league in the um, in the instructor down there. And I told Campanis, I said, um, the next time you'll see me is in spring training. I'm done. I said, I've been throwing the ball. It's time to take a rest. And he was kind of upset with me because he wanted to, you know, he, they wanted to make sure that they had a viable product. And, you know, to hell sure. with uh, what I was going to do down the road. But, um, uh, I didn't. I, I didn't touch a ball again until um, I had a time time schedule when I started to work out before spring training, and it was the Monday after Super Bowl, and I started throwing a baseball. And uh, I, threw, you know, and the funny thing was when I came back in that 1976 and quitting in '89. That's 13 years. I never missed a start in 13 years. So whatever Dr. Job and whatever Dr. Job did, whatever Bill Bueller, our trainer, did, whatever I did had to be pretty good because you pitch all those yeah. games and win all those games and not miss a start. That, that's pretty good. And you actually won 164 out of your 288 games after the surgery, and that is 40 more than you won before it and one fewer than Sandy Koufax won in his entire career, which I kind of think is This is what the pundits said. You know, he said, I wasn't Well, yeah, that guy said he won 175 or six or whatever. Um, but his ones were better than yours. I said, I beg your pardon? His ones were better than yours. I said, was he getting a Jewish discount? You know, I said, what's going on? No, come on. I said, uh, he he went out to win a ball game. I went out to win a ball game. We both won ball games. How are his, were his lower, lower hits, higher strikeouts? Yeah, that's when. There's, you know, and that's what all this BS gets to me about, uh, well, your wounds weren't as good as Sandy Koufax. Right. Let's switch topics here. We've kind of gone through your career. Um, let's switch topics now and kind of talk about, um, you had mentioned your decision to have the surgery and kind of what led up to that. Let's, uh, Tommy John Jr., talk, Dr. Tommy, talk to me kind of about what, what you're doing in terms of how you're trying to help youth sport. Let's start there. Well, having been in the performance and rehab business for over 17 years, I saw a trend and I did over 11,000 baseball lessons as well. So I was just like many of these former pros that don't have much to do after you, you get done, you hang up your spikes. So you figure you're just going to get involved with doing private lessons. Now the lessons these kids coming in were experiencing and showing and expressing these injuries of people that, that I was working with in their 40s, 50s, and 60s uh, age-wise. So the degenerative conditions were showing up in the 10, 11, 12-year-olds. 
So instead of continuing to do lessons more and more and make a profit off of what was going on, I realized that was a part of the problem and that these kids doing lessons in the wintertime, playing more sports in the one uh, uh, specializing early and early on, something wasn't right. And I started to notice it was across the board, not just baseball. So I ended up closing my baseball school went back to chiropractic school, got my doctorate in that just to amplify and enhance the training and rehab I was already doing. And so now what I'm doing is I have a performance and healing center that is literally every human walking through the door has certain barriers or inhibitions or limitations on what's preventing them from being their best self. Maybe they have a soft tissue injury. Maybe they have MS. Maybe they have a, a metabolic situation or a, or a, um, uh, a a dietary restriction of some kind that that all of a sudden their body is just rejecting certain foods. So basically what I do is, is help get people in a better position to heal from whatever they're, they're going through and perform at their highest level. Now what's walking through my door are young kids and these young kids are coming in with ACLs that are torn. They've already had concussions and they're only 12. They've got spinal fractures, stress fractures in their spine, and they're only 13 years old. Oh, and there's wow. Tommy John surgeries happening more in 15 to 19 year olds than any demographic. So just under 60% of all Tommy John surgeries are happening in 15 to 19 year olds, and that was 2014 numbers. The expected, wow. the expected soft soft tissue revenue, soft tissue surgery revenue is supposed to be over 17 billion by 2022 with the main driver being youth sports. So there's a major, major culprit, and there's a major cause that we're looking at, and it's the youth sports industry that's a $15 billion a year industry and growing. That and a couple other things put together has what we see as injury epidemics. Now, injuries in sports are a certainty. If you're going to play, you're risking injury, and that's part of it. Coming back is part of it. Being hurt is part of it. But these epidemics are sick. And this stuff means, like, big-time, big-time problems when you start to see these numbers. Concussions up 500% in the last four years. ACL surgeries up 60% in the last 20 years in 6 to 18-year-olds. And then what we see with Tommy John surgery. So my efforts are just to put a stop to this um, and, and, and take the word epidemic out of youth sports and injuries. And you decided to, in addition to um, the business that you run, you also wrote a book about it, and you, your dad was kind enough to write the foreword. You wrote a book called Minimize Injury, Maximize Performance, a sports, a sports Parent's Survival Guide. What, was, what kind of brought that decision on to write the book and then talk to us a little bit about the book itself? Yeah, you know, I... Over again, over that the course of those years, all a lot of people kept saying, you know, it'd be amazing if you could. Like, where'd you learn all this? Where'd you gather all this? And and nobody learns from one book. And if anybody tells you they're they're lying, or you, it's not somebody that's a master of anything, and you wouldn't really want to go to them. But it's just a snippets of a bunch of different areas that I've just researched and clinically tested and experimented on myself over the course of thousands and thousands of hours where I've put it together into one manual, so to speak, to put the power back into the hands of the parents, because I can only help who walks in my door. 
And a lot of the times, nobody wants to admit that they have a problem. And so what ended up happening with everything kind of coming together and um, all the right people being involved is now I've created a book that literally takes it out of an organization. We don't have to rely on a doctor to do a study to solve this riddle. We don't have to rely on Major League Baseball, the NBA, or the NFL. There's no physical therapist. There's no organization. There's no training center in Florida or Texas. There's no special place. It's literally in the hands of where the problem's coming from, and that's at the home. And so now these people, whoever it may be, can go ahead and dive through this and digest it at their own speed to make these changes back when these kids are six, seven, and eight years old. And that's where most of these problems are, are occurring. And I was fortunate, super fortunate to have my parents raise me in a very healthy youth sports culture. Cause everybody, everybody assumed that, that I was forced to pitch and I had to play baseball and it, but they did it right. They did. They let us experiment with different sports. It was never about winning. Um, we, we, I developed so late, and it took me so long to develop that I really wasn't good, good until late high school, and I still got a scholarship and still was player of the year of the state and still had all these things that everybody's trying to attain because I was, I was allowed to develop how a child should develop naturally. And so that's what part of the forward is that, that my dad was, was gracious enough to, to add in. And what's crazy, man, is that – a lot of the things he did back 44 years ago, 42 years ago, 44 years ago, um, on feel, I now implement in my practice, not because he did them, just because that's the way. That's the way it's been. That's the way it'll always be when you research how, how cultures and how people perform and develop and how everybody grooms themselves to perform at the highest level of sport and come back from injuries. It's always been a certain principle that we've relied upon, and it's just been perverted and twisted now to try to speed things up. But the principles he used 44 years ago to come back, he did it on feel, and I'm doing it based on just observation and, and experimentation. Pretty crazy. Yeah, it is. And the thing I want to know is those people that walk through your door, your dad mentioned earlier that Dr. Dr. Job told him basically the surgeon does 40% and the patient does 60%. Obviously, you know, your dad did way more than 60. Do you, do you think that a lot of, do you think that a lot of the athletes who get that done know that, you know, because that, because right now I think it's a, like a 12 to 10 to 24 month recovery period. How much of those, how much of, how many of those athletes do you think really put in that time to get back? Sadly, uh, very few, and this isn't to attack them. It's the way the system is set up in America. We are a save me society now. We look to doctors to be saved. We look to a protocol to be saved, to a program to save us. Somebody save me. Somebody make me thin. Somebody make me smart. Somebody make me less tired. Somebody make me not depressed. Somebody make me less anxious. Somebody make my legs feel like they want to move when I'm laying in bed. Like somebody fix me. And the way we promote it now is the Tommy John surgery will fix you, but nobody, and it's very, very, very few, which is obvious because nobody's coming back and having the career that he did. There's nobody up against the wall. It's a, well, all right, I'm going to have the surgery. I mean, I am a pitcher after all. I mean, that's literally how we talk about it. 
And then I'll come back when I come back and I'll just follow. I mean, I spoke to a kid who was in the Braves organization. I'm not going to say his name, but I chatted with him when he was three weeks in the splint. And I said, look, you've got a long road ahead of you. You've got to get to the source of this. This is going to take a lot of work body-wide. You've got to do stuff 24-7. Every single day you're going to be rehabbing this. He's like, well, I'm sure the Braves have me. Like, I'm sure the Braves have everything under control. And it's not the Braves. It's just the system is set up. That kid had it three times. Three Tommy John surgery. Something's Mm. not right. And so that's where we're at now. It's literally – this will save me, or it's being touted as performance enhancing to where I'll get it if I'm on the cusp of it. And I have a screenshot, and I post it regularly on my social media where it's my dad on the left side doing an exercise with this face of determination and grit and persistence, and he had nowhere to go. It was either figure this out or do something else. And then you have the screen split, and you have another guy, I'm not going to say who it is, but he's standing in the training room of a Major League Baseball stadium staring at the TV while he's doing rehab. And that's where we're at now. That's the level of, right. of, of preparedness that we have. Nobody could handle the 100 pitch count that they mysteriously came up with in the late 80s and early 90s, which is just above a 12-year-old's capacity. So now you just lowered the bar. <laughs> Now the the highest level of baseball isn't even matching that level because they're not able to sustain what they're burning now. And to be totally honest, in fairness to the teams and surgeons and doctors, the mileage on those Ferraris is so high that you wouldn't pay $10,000 for a Ferrari if you knew the mileage on those guys. But that's what you're trying to do. What's the tires like? What's the mileage? What's the injury history, the accident history? And it starts when they're 8, 9, 10 years old. So if we want to change Major League Baseball, you have to start at the youth level. Or the only other option is to pluck every Major League pitcher out of the big leagues for 12 months to 24 months, just like you said, 24-7. Focus on revamping and rewiring your entire system, emotionally, physically, and intellectually. No throwing until, you let, until that first phase goes through. Then you start coming back, and then you go back to competitive baseball. Maybe we could save the big leagues, but there's too much money involved, and Scott Boris would never allow that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you think it's – you don't think it's so much that, you know, maybe on the fans here, oh, the surgery didn't work. You think it's more – maybe the player's not doing what he needs to do to get back to the level that, let's say, your dad got back to. Uh, and, again, again, in all fairness, the player needs guidance, you know, and the player needs to – the player is, is, has so much faith in that system. It's like, hey, what should I do? I, the, the system in general is, is failing them. The surgery is the surgery. And, I mean, you replace right. the part, but you still have to plug the fridge in. You still have to make sure all the other wires are intact. You still have to make sure it's cleaned out. Like, the motor being changed out, okay, big deal. Now what? And so the surgeons are off the hook because the surgery is the surgery. It's mechanist. It, it, it's replaced the part. Now I'm off of it. That's why I don't know why we keep interviewing them. They don't know about performance, healing, and rehab. They don't know about function. They know about broken parts and what to do to replace them. But literally the players, I just the, – the amount of work it would take to prevent it in a healthy person is so extreme at the highest level of sport that once you have a surgery, the amount of work you have to do now in, in addition to 
I just don't think right. they have a clue. And if you talk to Tommy John about what he did on a daily basis, there was none of this three-day-a-week rehab. Three days a week, throws two bullpens, 40-pitch max, at-home rest. It was all the time there was something he was doing at all times for the next 14 years. And then, and he never missed a start because of his elbow. So something was right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we brought up the name Sandy Koufax earlier, and to me, he seems kind of he seems kind of a, like a very interesting case because, you know, for many people who don't know, he basically had about a 10-year career. He debuted in 1955, and I want to say he ended in 67 or 68, and he burned his arm out. And it seems to me like he's somebody who maybe could have benefited from the knowledge that you're trying to impart on your patients. Does that seem accurate? Because it seems like he just went out there and tried to throw – throw harder than everybody else all the time and he ended up blowing his arm out like you know and your dad came back and your dad came back and won 160 some games after the surgery and pitched many years longer than sandy did and i i think dad you can concur i think he would would have been the first one who would would have had it if i have been a better doctor if i knew the physiology and the anatomy of the of the body better than what I did, I was absolutely 100% certain now that Sandy Koufax needed Tommy John surgery. (laughs) And I said, so I got Sandy Koufax surgery. And he laughed and he said, yeah. But he said, I just didn't know enough then. And I said, well, how did you know mine? And he says, my God, Stevie Wonder could have seen your arm was bad. (laughs) And on on that note, it's it's one of those things that if you're going to burn that high, there you got to think that we build in a in a pyramid. That every every human athlete is built in a pyramid of three sections. The bottom section being the broadest, the middle section being a little less, but built on top of that bottom, and then the top section being the smallest. Now, the top section in an athlete is your sport, your skill. So that's throwing a baseball. But where we keep trying to make all these changes is at the top part. Let's control pitch counts. Let's work on the mechanics because one guy on MLB is going to show you how to throw the way to prevent all injuries. But nobody's dealing with they're going top, top down kind of a thing. And even that top part of the pyramid is something my dad, small, some of those old school guys that everybody kind of makes fun of now because it's a different game if you want to call it that. But if you take that top part of the pyramid, the baseball part, and you expect expand it even more that baseball pyramid is built like a pyramid in and of itself with the bottom part being playing catch throwing sub max a lot getting on a mound and throwing a lot and then the middle part is throwing long toss throwing heavy footballs throwing heavy baseballs doing all these whatever and then the top top portion is your game your hundred pitch game which nobody seems to be able to sustain now so that pyramid is built on another pyramid, and so that those pyramids are inverted now in America. And so that, that's what we're li- losing. And now <laughs> I talked to a surgeon the other day, and the solution isn't just have major league pitchers start throwing more. Because if they did, they would just start blowing stuff left and right even more so because they're so not conditioned right. to handle the little they're doing now. Even though it seems grandiose in nature – 
a 98 to those guys was still 86 to me and 88 to my dad or 85 to my dad. I tried to throw that hard. That's just my, my, sure. 80, my 98 was 86, you know, so I know the forces mm-hmm. are greater, but the systems creating those forces are greater. So you can't right. say like, Oh, well, he's big. He's going to get injured. It doesn't, it doesn't match that way. Cause everything should come along together in a, an appropriate developed human and they're not developed at all. What are some of the what are some of the best things that because you you talked about it earlier how you kind of grew up in, in the perfect system and that you got nurtured correctly and you were you were taught how to take care of yourself and your parents really did that and I assume having a dad who played major league baseball he was really able to kind of help you and say okay here's what you have to do to get to this point what are what are the biggest things uh, that kids today can do to be successfully healthy and avoid having yeah. massive arm surgery yeah. or elbow surgery. Yeah. So that's, that's the big thing. We, and, and everyone's going to look for that single finger to put in the dam, but what they're re- missing is that the dam's overflowing and that it's going to be a whole bunch of things. Now in defense of the comment about my dad, uh, well, I had a major leaguer in the house. Therefore I learned how to throw appropriately from, he never touched mechanics. We never talked about, we never stressed. He never created a stressful environment for me to pitch in. I, I remember I would ask him, I would, I would constantly ask him, can you teach me new pitches? Can I learn? And there was a time when that was going to happen and it wasn't going to be when I was 12 years old, but I'd ask sure. him. I mean, it got to the point to where I even asked him, I want to hit in the winter time. And my dad's like, okay, no, like baseball, baseball <laughs> is summer and spring. <laughs> But I go, right. I go, I want to hit this winter. And he's like, okay, uh, well, you know, so he got some baseballs from Yankee Stadium. He, he bought a net uh, in our garage in New Jersey, and he stole a traffic cone from Creskill, from the streets of Creskill, New Jersey. And the traffic cone was a high strike. So it bothered me because I didn't want to hit a high strike. It wasn't my sweet spot. And I asked, I said, Dad, this isn't this isn't a strike. And he's like, it will be. And so the thing was, I just hit, he didn't sit and watch any of them. Like he just left the garage. And then I stayed in there and hit because I wanted to. Again, that's one of the problems we've got now is you got these helicopter parents. You have everybody pressing to try to extend and draw out this elite youth for fear that they're going to be missing out or they're going to be left behind because the youth sports industries have wielded this fear. It's their sales pitch. If you don't start at nine or 10, you will be left behind in high school. That's the pitch. You will not make it. And that's just not true. That's not how anybody develops in the hottest pockets of the world producing these athletes. That's not how you do it. So if you think about this early on in nine, 10, 11 years old, 90% of their work week and their athletic pursuits should just be general movements with 10% being skill meaning throwing baseball, sure. kicking soccer balls, shooting basketball. But in this country, it's 90-10 the other way. And we're competing, we're competing, we're competing. So play as many sports as possible to what the child wants to do. Let the kid figure out what sports they want to do because here's the thing. One, it's their deal. It's their lives and the decisions we're making on are having these profound impact later on in their life that they're going to have to deal with the medications and rehab and everything else because of the decisions you're making now. So – let them decide what they want to play. One, bodies mature at different rates. 
So one year a kid may excel at one sport because he's shaped a certain way and developed at a certain level. And the next year they may have had a growth spurt or they may be uh, developed certain systems further along that made them better at another sport. And if not giving allow, uh, not being allowed to, to explore that, they would be stuck in the one sport. Like Carl Lewis was a profound soccer player. If Carl Lewis were to play today, somebody would have locked him in on soccer and we would not have had all those history, historical moments of the gold medals that he won in the Olympics. And sure. that's just the sad part now. So one of the biggest independent uh, variables, the, the greatest risk factor in youth sports, youth kids getting injured is sports specialization early on. So it's playing more than eight months a year in your single sport. And we know this, my dad knows this, is that the highest level of baseball, highest level of sports don't play year-round. So if they're not able to physically, mentally, emotionally, then there's no way your 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds should be able to either. And what we've got is we're experiencing an increase in elite youth but a dysfunctional teen in adulthood. So we're just drawing out this thing that they would have gotten to already. They just can't sustain it. So one, play as many sports as you can. Don't specialize. Outside play as much as possible. Limit technology. No smartphones until late high school. I know that's going to be a bear, but these, these pads, these screens, <laughs> these computers, these kids staring at it has nothing to do with inactivity. Inactivity is gross. It's across the board. We're just, we're just a soft, non-moving nation. That's just it across the board. But the bits of information coming off these screens are lowering the immune response because it increases the fight or flight response in these kids. So I have kids coming in who are underslept. They stare at screens. Their immune system can't heal a flu, let alone a torn ligament. And so it's this combination of a lot of things. Another thing is to look at are the foods that we're nourishing them. A lot of these kids are overfed and malnourished. And if you look at, what those, that paradox in terms, meaning they're overfed with foods that aren't foods. So there's no diet that's going to save them because there's just no diet that will ever exist. That's just the way. Everybody's different. But the big rule of thumb that I love to use is eat foods that rot. Make sure that they're real. If a kid loves only one vegetable, eat just that one vegetable. Don't worry about it. They'll change their palate over time as their bodies change. Um, but right. they need certain foods to help nourish and rebuild and remake themselves. Uh, Bedtime before 11, we need to respect sleep, no screens, no computers, limit their tech time. Um, kids are in four to six hours a day of, of sitting in front of a television and, or a computer or a pad of some kind, and that's just tearing away at the systems of these. The physical competency of these kids is, is atrocious, and what they're looking for, they're looking to the sports to save the kids. Like, well, my kid plays two sports, therefore he has a hall pass from being active at home. I've heard that. And now here's the deal. Only a quarter of sports provide the 60 minutes of vigorous activity that the government recommends. So only a quarter of the sports are providing these kids. And we're 40, we were ranked in the last study 47th out of 50th of fit kids in industrialized countries. We're 47th out of 50. <laughs> we're not doing well. We couldn't feel the World Cup team. How embarrassing is that? Right. And when you talk to a Danish, there's a Danish, there's a Danish coach, uh, I believe he was Danish, he was talking to a guy named John O'Sullivan at Changing the Game Project on a podcast, and he said, you American youth sports people train your athletes to be slow. And he goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, you have five games in a weekend, 
on these kids that are developing. The first game, all kids go in at 100% mental, physical, intellectual, emotional capacity to learn and compete. The next game, they're at 80%. The next game, they're at 75%. The next, and then the championship game, all of them are playing at 60 65%. So now, when are you supposed to learn? How are you supposed to learn? So they're learning at this lower level, whereas those countries that are in the World Cup, they'll only play 20 games in a year. And the kid goes in each time because they're practicing and moving and developing their bodies appropriately, where we, to make a buck and try to enhance early because we've got to do it now. We're a now immediate gratification society and the biggest thing that's paying is it's not the pocketbooks of the parents, it's the kids, and they're going on operating tables and having to rehab from their childhood. So it's a multifaceted solution. It won't happen in a day. The whole family has to be behind it. But I think the biggest thing and the most empowering thing is to know that it's in your hands. That's what's so great is that everything I'm talking about and everything that's discussed in the book, it's, it's on you. It's in your hands, but that's a – that's a big accountability bug right there. And, and that's going to be a lot for a lot of parents to have to go through. But I think for the sake of your child, I think it's worth it. Absolutely. And, and we have about seven minutes left and I want to give you guys a chance at the end of the, at the end of the show here to uh, promote your book a little bit, but uh, I'd be remiss yeah. if I didn't ask your dad, I'm a, I'm a gigantic lifelong twin fan. Can you give me a Harmon Killebrew and a Kirby Puckett story? <laughs> um, Harmon Killebrew. Well, I, I, I hated to face Harmon because <laughs> he, he was a good low ball hitter. You know, he wasn't very tall. And he had, and and I, we never had scouting reports on uh, on these guys. And I would throw in that right. little dinky sinker of mine, and I runs off of me. He was most prolific home run hitter off me, and if it came down, I would walk in and face Tony Oliva. That, that's how smart I was. <laughs> but you know, I could get Tony out. I, I could get Tony out, but Harmon was Harmon was tough. And Kirby Puckett, you know, that's why I, I make the statement that baseball, you don't have to be seven feet tall to play baseball like you do in basketball. Or you right. have to weigh 280 like you do in football, mm-hmm. you know. Right. Uh, you can be tall like Randy Johnson, short and fat like Kirby Puckett or someplace in between, and you can play. But I remember Puck uh, coming up. I was with the Angels, and in his first years up, um, God, he was just a skinny kid. Uh, came out, and God, could he hit. Holy mackerel. Just right off the bat, you went, whoa, what's this guy doing? But um, – the good hitters never hit the ball to one field. They used the good hitters hit the right. ball to all fields. Now, Killebrew was not a great hitter. He was a great home run hitter, so he pulled the ball. But uh, if you want to see the thing about about Harmon or how good Harmon was, 
go to the Mall of America and go to where home plate of the old Metropolitan Stadium <laughs> yep. and then look yep. up on the wall and see where he hit a home run and you'll go, holy crap, <laughs> he hit it there. Yeah, yeah. he hit it there. <laughs> yeah, and and I believe uh, Kirby Puckett made his Major League debut against the Angels, and I want to say he had three hits in his Major League debut, something like that. So, yeah, like you said, he just he might he have. I think, he, I, I think he faced uh, Jeff Zahn, I, I believe, the left-handed okay. pitcher, Jeff Zahn. Yeah, yep. I, I, no, I, I remember full well of him coming up, and, you know, no, nobody knew him. And, and who is this guy? I don't know. He's just a skinny kid, and. You know, and then he got some heft on it. Right. And and like you said, too, you know, one of the great things, and to use an analogy or to use players that people today will will recognize, is you can either be a Jose Altuve or an Aaron Judge, and you can still succeed. Yes, you can. And, yes, you can. You, you know, know, and, and the thing – Yeah. Uh, the thing that, that I, I, I used – I I had this thing in my mind that I wanted to run in the New York Marathon. I I had this, but every time I started building up miles, my knees and my hips and my ankles started to hurt, which told me I was too heavy to run like that. But that was my goal, and I would talk to these running coaches. Tommy, you you got to build up to 150 miles a week or whatever, to run in a marathon. Well, now, when I'm pitching and I'm getting ready to pitch, if I only throw 40 or 50 pitches one time in between starts, am I going to be able to throw 125 pitches in a ball game? No. Uh, I'm no. told when I coached in the minor leagues that a pitcher's arm starts getting tired at 75, 80 pitches. And my thing was, why? Why does it have to start to get – Right. If you train, if you train and throw more pitches in between your starts, you can train to throw 120 to 30, yeah. 35 pitches without any problems. Absolutely. And we have about two minutes left. Um, Tommy won 288 games in his career, and that rate number seven among seventh highest among left-handers in the history of Major League Baseball. And I believe he also has the all-time MLB record for no decisions with 188. Is that correct? I don't know. I just sure. heard that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I, uh, but I know, know I, think, uh, yeah. I, I think I have the highest ground ball to fly ball ratio in the history of the game. Sure. Sure. Gentlemen, I cannot tell you how great of a thrill this is for me. Um, Tommy, I just want to let you know that uh, Dick Bramer is still calling games for the Minnesota Twins. So if that if that helps put things into perspective, I know he was your broadcast colleague for a few years. He's still calling Twins games. I cannot tell you But guys, is he letting both, his broadcast partner get his – is he letting them get their uh, their time in? Uh, Dick went one game, he went three innings, and I never, as the analyst, I never got a word in. He called the play, described the play, why the play happened, three innings. <laughs> sure. 
and I'm just well, sitting you, there, and I look at him, and he went, "Oh, Tommy, I'm sorry, I'm I'm sorry, I just <laughs> I just got caught up in myself." Okay. <laughs> well, you know, his in the the play by play or the analyst is Burt Blylevin, so he gets he gets quite a few words in edgewise. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I cannot thank you enough for both coming on the show. It was a fascinating show. It was a great hour. Definitely need to change the system in the way that we're treating our athletes starting as young yes. as six years old. Tommy has yeah. a book written with his, uh, with the forward again being written by his father. It's called Minimize Injury, Maximize Performance, a Sports Parents Survival Guide. Where can the book be found and what's your website? If you go to don'tcutmykid.com, all the information you'll need is right there. Okay, perfect. And that's don'tcutmykid.com. Guys, thank you so very much. It's been my distinct honor and privilege to be able to come on this podcast with you guys and to have you uh, share your experiences and to tell the story. And it sounds like it's another epidemic that we really hopefully will be able to change. And it all starts at home with the parents. Thanks for, thanks for having us on. And um, uh, if you get the book is phenomenal. Tommy's done a great job and it's just parents have to listen. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for the time. Thank you for our, for the opportunity and for helping us in our mission. Thank you guys very much. You guys take care. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Right. right. Thank you, you as well. Bye-bye. Take care. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. That was Tommy John, former major leaguer, winner of 288 career games, as well as his son, Dr. Tommy John Jr., a chiropractor with a sports medicine background. You can hear um, Dr. Tommy John got kind of fired up there when he was talking about it, and as well he should. It's, It's clearly an epidemic that we have a problem with in America and kids need to um, learn everything from better sleep habits to better workout habits to better eating habits. And that, as he said, is a small part of the process in becoming the best person you can be, which also helps make you the premier athlete that you want to be. Go to www.don'tcutmykid.com for more information about his program and also his book. I can't believe I just talked to Tommy John. I mean, that's fantastic. All right, guys, thank you very much. We will. I'm going to be doing another podcast here in about a week or so, so be on the lookout for that. Leave me a five-star review on iTunes if you like this, and also find me on Twitter at Devlin under slash Clark 84. I'm also on Facebook at Devlin Clark. Thank you very much, and we'll see you down the road in podcast land. <laughs>